Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Investigates podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Uh, the new podcast is up and running on most podcast streaming services. There are still some growing pains with running two podcasts, but overall, it was a pretty smooth transition. Thank you to everyone who's already listened to episode one of this podcast, and thank you for stopping by for episode two. I am hoping to have at least 10 of these episodes done by the time I leave for CrimeCon in two weeks, as well as a couple of episodes ready to go for the True Blue Crime Premium Podcast for PayPal and Patreon subscribers. It's all very exciting, and I can't wait to hopefully meet a few of you at CrimeCon in Orlando, but let's quick cover the business before we get into this episode. If you'd like to get updates about what this podcast and the other podcasts are up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. If you'd like to email me directly, my email for all podcasts is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show, any of the shows, via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. And eventually, when I get that True Blue Crime Premium podcast up and running, certain Patreon support levels, as well as certain levels of PayPal donations, will unlock the premium episodes for those people that do choose to support that. I'll still be making free episodes on True Blue Crime and True Blue Crime Investigates, but I will be doing some special listener requests, episodes, and just episodes that will only be available to those that support me through Patreon and PayPal on that premium channel. But for no cost whatsoever, you can rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime Investigates. Now, this case is the 1991 Austin Yogurt Shop murders, and this is a case that has intrigued me for years. Uh, the good news is that investigators do have some evidence in the form of DNA, and I do think this crime will be solved in the near future. But this case also highlights the danger of coerced confessions and malicious prosecution. Not only did four innocent lives end the night of the murders, four teenagers innocent of the crime would be accused of committing this heinous act, and two would spend a significant amount of time in prison before being freed after it was proven their rights were violated and the most important evidence at the scene was not brought up in their trials and likely would have led to their acquittals. This is the case of the 1991 Austin, Texas yogurt shop murders. It was shortly before midnight on December 6, 1991 in Austin, Texas when a police officer on routine patrol saw what looked like an active fire at a yogurt shop. An accidental fire, one caused by a rushed teenage worker closing the shop on a Friday night before plans with friends, was a likely culprit. At worst, the crime could possibly be an arson, one that would later be linked back to an attempt to collect insurance money. But when firefighters extinguished the blaze, the body of four teenage girls in the back of the store brought a tragic and terrifying revelation to the case. This was arson, but it was committed to cover up some terrible acts in the quadruple murder of four young women. Over the almost 32 years since this horrible crime was committed, there have been several leads, false confessions, and even two false convictions, but the true perpetrator or perpetrators have never been identified and brought to justice. In order to better understand the investigation, let's explore that evening's events based on eyewitness accounts and what we know about the victims, the crime scene, and the evidence. The yogurt shop where this occurred was a chain of frozen yogurt shops called I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. These were a lot like old-fashioned ice cream parlors with various flavors of frozen yogurt that you could add all types of toppings to so you could make a delicious frozen yogurt sundae. And I remember these. We had them up in the Twin Cities area, but we had TCBYs in Minnesota. I know this early 90s time period, this was kind of a fad thing. You still had your soft serve, of course, across the country with Dairy Queens and, and places like that but these places were again like these old-fashioned ice cream parlors but it was frozen yogurt which was supposed to be healthier than ice cream but it was really just really heavily sugared yogurt so it's basically the same thing as far as I could tell but these were kind of again popular in the in the 90s especially the early 90s and they've come kind of back into fashion now I know there's one by 
where I live, uh, Cherry Berry. Again, it's a frozen yogurt place where you fill a cup with uh, different flavors of, of soft serve frozen yogurt, and then you go through a, a topping, and, and then they weigh it, and depending on how much your creation weighs, that's how much you pay for it. So uh, again, these places do still exist, but uh, back in the in the 1990s uh, in, in Austin, Texas, the, the chain was, I can't believe it's yogurt. And working that night were 17-year-old Eliza Thomas and 17-year-old Jennifer Harbison. And then 15-year-old Sarah Harbison is going to be the sister to 17-year-old Jennifer Harbison. Some articles said she was working that night. She was the third employee. Others say she was just visiting her sister who was working, and it was just the two older girls there. And I, I tend to believe this more just because I can't imagine that it's going to be that busy on a on a Friday night in December that you're going to need to have three people working late into the evening. So I, I think it was just misreported that Sarah also worked there. I think it was that Eliza and Jennifer, the 17-year-olds, worked there, and 15-year-old Sarah was waiting for her sister Jennifer to get off work, and then 13-year-old Amy Ayers was waiting in the shop that night, and she was friends with Sarah, and the two younger girls were going to get a ride home from Jennifer after the shift ended. Initially, police had little to work with in terms of evidence in the case. The firefighters used a lot of water to extinguish the extremely hot fire, and the bodies of three of the girls were badly burned and in four inches of water. Dozens of firefighters, officers, and detectives walked around the crime scene for the first hour. And this is something we run into on almost any case where arson is used to cover up a murder. I, I'm not, and I never will be telling anyone how to commit a crime. I, that's obviously not the point of the podcast. But from my experience, Anytime you have a fire, it complicates a, a criminal investigation. And when you have a fire that's been put out by the fire department, that also complicates the investigation. I actually put together a training that I would put on for our firefighters. We had a full-time fire department in the suburb that I worked at. And as part of their academy, they would attend a training that I would put on that would talk about the difficulties of investigating crime scenes after EMS response, whether it be firefighters or paramedics or both. And then I would also talk about scene safety and firefighters that have been shot at and killed arriving to scenes before police are there to secure it. So it was kind of a two-part training that I, I put together and then presented for them. But one of the things in there, I, I, I've definitely discussed if there's life-saving opportunities crime scene is secondary to life-saving and when it comes to these fires you can't obviously just let the fire burn it's burning up the crime scene you have to extinguish it so you're going to have to apply water and there's really no way for them to put out that fire without causing destruction to your evidence uh, it's, it's just part of it but the the second part of this i talked about all the firefighters, the officers, the detectives, EMS walking through this scene, that was a big part of my training was personnel that don't need to be on site, especially after the fire's been ex extinguished, that crime scene needs to be locked down immediately uh, to prevent potential cross-contamination or dis further destruction of evidence. So this was, again, a big thing that I harped on, and granted this is 1991, so DNA is not nearly as prevalent uh, obviously as it is today so that's not going to be a thought process that's going to be entering the minds but even just walking through a crime scene these these firefighters they wear big bulky equipment uh, that often they run into things they step on things they step over things that and, and we've had uh, shell casings get stuck in boots of paramedics, of firefighters, of police officers that have walked through a scene that didn't need to be there, and now that shell casing is embedded in their boot, potentially scratching it up, causing issues with extraction marks, all that kind of stuff. So again, it was a big thing that I harped on a lot. The problem is, we'll talk about here, Austin was a new quote-unquote big city at the time. And this is because they had broke 250,000 in population in 1970. So they were already, at, by 1970, considered a pretty decent-sized city. They weren't Chicago or New York or L.A., but they were definitely growing. But in the 21 years since they hit 250,000, so by 1991, they had doubled in population. So they had gone from a 
the cusp of being a, considered a big city to now they have half a million people in just 21 years. And so they struggled as a police department to keep up with this booming population because as I've talked about on my other podcast, you have a certain ratio of police officers that you want to match up to your population. So if you're doubling your population, you're doubling or sometimes even more than that because the more people you get, the more problems you end up with. You're doubling your police force, which means a lot of hiring, which means potential for some bad hiring, potential for some bad promotions. And ultimately, in 1991, the Austin Police Department, they're facing pretty low morale because a a couple of their police officers were part of some high-profile criminal investigations. You know, this was all over the news about these police officers that were getting investigated for some high-level crimes, being convicted of some high-level crimes, and and then on top of that, they can't keep up with the population boom, so they have these extremely low staff levels. And in 1991, the city of half a million had only six full-time homicide detectives, but was averaging over 40 homicides a year. And just in this case alone, four of those six detectives are going to be assigned to this case. And there's immense pressure at the time to solve this case. And that pressure is coming from, obviously, the families of the girls, as well as politicians, police administrators, the media, and the citizens of Austin. And this is because Austin was considered a quote-unquote safe place to live. And actually, currently, it's one of the safest cities in in the country. But when they're going through these growing pains of becoming this big city there was a a big uptick in crime that matched a lot of the bigger cities of the 90s and people in austin weren't used to that and were looking to the police department to put a stop to it and meanwhile the police department's having all types of internal issues and then they get hit with this quadruple homicide of four teenage girls And as I've also talked about in my other podcast, homicide cases are often looked at like a hand of poker. And I'm not downplaying the tragedy of a homicide. I'm just creating a metaphor here that sometimes the hand you're dealt makes solving the case easy. And for example, if if a homicide involves a spouse during a divorce or custody battle, you have a pretty strong suspect and it's just putting the case together against that pretty strong suspect. Now, it's not always the case and it's not always easy, but being dealt that hand is a lot easier than one with a stranger homicide, especially one involving four victims and a destroyed crime scene. Three of the girls, Eliza, Sarah, and Jennifer, so the two 17-year-olds and the 15-year-old were found in a, in a back hallway kind of area and Amy was found in a back room. They had all been ordered to remove their clothing, and they had been bound using items in the store and their underwear. Two of them had been sexually assaulted, and all four of them had been shot in the head before the shop was set on fire. As word sped around Austin about the monstrous crime, eyewitnesses came forward who had been in the shop the evening of the murders. They told police that a man got into a dispute with other customers while standing in line about an hour before close. He then went to near the back of the store and spent a considerable amount of time in the public restroom and the restroom is located near a back door that some believe the man could have propped open which would have allowed him to enter the store via the back after the girls locked the front door at close and this is part of a strip mall so you have i'm assuming the back door i only saw a picture of the front of the store but i'm assuming that the back door probably leads into either a back parking lot behind the strip mall or maybe some type of a courtyard area behind the strip mall but basically it's going to be an area potentially the employees would park back there and so as they lock the front door the belief is that this guy could have somehow propped open the back door so when the girls are not paying as close attention they're a little more vulnerable they've locked the front door this guy without for using force can enter in the back of the store and ambush them basically and other witnesses described two shady looking men that were hanging out in the shop at close the last two customers known to see the girls alive stated there were two men sitting in the shop as they left and the girls locked the front door this would be common practice as it would only prevent someone from coming in the front door and would not prevent the customers already inside the store from leaving and this is the case in most commercial buildings, most restaurants, stores, situations like that, they have those bars that 
or some type of a mechanism that allows you to leave from the inside, but it locks the door from the outside. And this is for things like fire safety. Uh, if there's obviously some type of an emergency, you can't lock, lock the door so that the people inside can't get out. So a lot of the times, if you've worked retail or restaurants or, or whatnot, you'll lock the front door at closing. And if you still have customers, obviously you let them know, hey, the store's closing, but you're not kicking them out right at close in most cases. They may have purchased their yogurt, in this case, five minutes before close, and they want to eat it. And that's just part of being in retail or the restaurant business is waiting for those last minute people to exit the premises but again in order to prevent more people from being added into the mix they often lock the front door so that people on the outside can't enter but people on the inside can still leave so these last two customers they're leaving as one of the girls is locking the door these two guys are still in the yogurt shop at this point and bullets and shell casings recovered at the scene indicated two different guns were used during the murders a 380 and a 22 caliber handgun were used to execute the victims. Other than that limited evidence and the couple of statements from eyewitnesses, detectives did not have a lot to work with in the case. Then a few days later at a nearby mall, a then 15 year old boy named Maurice Pierce was caught with a loaded 22 caliber handgun tucked in his waistband. Given the proximity to the yogurt shop, the detectives interrogated him hard about the handgun and the murders, and while no recordings of the interrogation exist, they developed a list of three other teenagers that Maurice told them had been involved. However, what likely happened was that the 15-year-old Maurice was under immense pressure from the interrogation and basically threw three of his buddies under the bus to try and get out from charges related to him possessing the handgun. He didn't have enough specifics about the case, and he was ruled out as a suspect at that time. So from what I could understand, and this is going to be part of a series of missteps in this investigation, the police are under this immense pressure to solve this case. They come across this teenage kid who has a 22 caliber handgun, which, mind you, 22 caliber is probably one of the most common calibers of handguns out there. It's readily available. The ammunition is very cheap for them. It's not nearly obviously as powerful as a 9mm or a 45 caliber handgun. Uh, those are, are much more powerful rounds, but a 22 caliber handgun oftentimes is very small, very easy to conceal. It's used by people for self-defense and used a lot of times by criminals. So it's not as if it was a, a rare handgun caliber. There are some out there that are more rare than say the 22 or the 9 millimeter and so had it been a more rare handgun caliber and let's just say the ammunition was a rare type of ammunition and those matched up i could see the connection proximity and potentially that being the murder weapon but if you arrest back in 1991 10 guys with that are possessing handguns illegally I'm going to guess that a lot of those are going to be 9 millimeters, and a lot of them are going to be 22 calibers. And you might get the rare 357, the 380s, 40 cals, different calibers that work their way into the mix. But again, a 22 caliber, we hear about them being used a lot. And so just to draw that connection and go after them hard is what's going to potentially lead to a false confession at this point and issues down the road. And it was said that Maurice basically threw three of his buddies under the bus because he didn't want to be the one caught with a handgun. And the way these interrogations work is I'm sure the officers offered him an out saying like, hey, we don't believe you were the one that had the handgun during these, these terrible murders. But if somebody were to have given you the handgun to hold on to, we could understand that. That, that could explain why you have this gun why you have the potential murder weapon so why don't you tell us who you hang out with and who could have given you this handgun and after hours and hours of interrogation and asking questions especially to a teenage boy it doesn't take long for some of these people to turn and decide if i want to try to get out of this i got to come up with a story and then their story actually ends up burying them or involving them or whatever it might be but at the same time, it's going to be pretty clear to investigators 
early on whether the this kid and his buddies are going to have anything to do with it whether they're going to have knowledge of the crime scene that things that the police officers saw the investigators saw that would match up versus somebody who's just making stuff up to try to make a story work so pretty quickly they're going to say we don't think this is our guy we don't think this is related and at the same time a teenage couple came under suspicion after they confessed to the crimes but they too were ruled out after they had gotten too many details about the crime wrong and were considered no longer to be suspects. So it's pretty telling that you have two different situations in which investigators are looking at completely different people involved in this crime. One case, a teenage couple, another case, these four teenagers, and the police are able to get confessions out of both of them, but their confessions don't match up to the crime. To me, you're starting to see a common denominator here of false confessions and that usually is indicative of bad interrogation techniques that are looking to, to, to force a confession out of somebody that doesn't have knowledge of the crime. And in October of 1992, 10 months after the murders, Mexican police told U.S. authorities they had gotten a confession to the crime from a man who ran an outlaw biker gang. A Hispanic man, I think he had the nickname the Terminator, had been seen the evening of the murders, so initially detectives believed the man could be a valuable suspect. But it was soon learned the suspect had been tortured by the Mexican authorities, and he gave inaccurate details about the crime during his confession, and was most likely not related to the crime. And again, this is where, if you do an interrogation right, and I'm not saying torture in any way is justified in these cases, but if you do an interrogation right, the person should be introducing all of the information about the crime scene. What I've, when I've watched bad interrogations, when I've watched investigators desperate to gain a confession, they will start to introduce either that holdback information or details about the crime that weren't released to the public or would the public necessarily wouldn't know. And they'll ask the person, is it possible that your buddy shot two of them in the head and you shot, you just shot one of them in the chest? And that might be information, again, that the public doesn't know. They just know that these girls were killed. They don't know how they were shot necessarily. So then later on, when the suspect says, okay, yeah, 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 you know, I, I wanted to look like a man, so I, I shot, but I purposely only shot the girl in the shoulder so that so I wouldn't actually be a killer, but my buddies shot her in the head. And then the, the investigators, aha, that's information that they wouldn't know unless they committed the crime. They're confessing to specific details of the crime. Well, those were details that were introduced during the interrogation, during the questioning. And especially since some of these interrogations are going to go on for, I think one of them was like 18 hours, there can be a point where that person doesn't remember what was said. And, and to a certain degree, the investigators might not remember introducing it. And 10 hours later, they think they've, they've got their aha moment where somebody confessed to something they didn't tell them. And in 1991, those interrogations of Maurice Pierce weren't even recorded from what I could see. I don't even know if there was transcripts of it. So again, this is, this is what this case is based off of these confessions, and we're seeing a, a series, two of them by the Austin PD and one by the Mexican authorities, where they're gaining confessions from people that don't appear to be suspects once the interrogation is done. So then the case sat cold for seven years until a new group of detectives was assigned to the case and told to give it a fresh look in 1999. They sat down with the case file in August and went over what evidence they had and if they believed any of the suspects identified early on needed to be looked at a second time. Four months later, on October 6, 1999, detectives on the cold case force arrested the four teenagers that were looked at after Maurice was found in possession of the 22 caliber handgun just days after the murders. So it was Maurice Pierce and then the other three men were Forrest Welburn, Robert Burns, Springsteen IV, and Michael Scott. And later, in 1999, prosecutors convened a grand jury and presented evidence against the four teens. Maurice, Michael, and Robert were all indicted for four counts of capital murder, but Forrest faced two different grand juries that failed to indict him. It was decided that Michael and Robert would face the death penalty as they were 16 at the time of the murders, but Maurice was only 15 at the time, so he was not eligible for the death penalty. 
and this is a good time to talk about these grand juries. I've mentioned them in the other podcast, but most people don't understand the difference between a grand jury and a trial. So during a grand jury, there's no defense present. There's no defense attorneys. The suspect themselves, he or she is not present during the grand jury. It is simply the prosecution, whatever witnesses the prosecution wants to call, and then a room full of basically uh, it's 30, 40 people sometimes. I've been witnessed at a couple of grand juries where it's a totally different experience than a trial. It feels more like a classroom atmosphere and they allow the the people in the grand jury to ask questions of the witnesses. So one of the couple that I testified for as a, as a crime scene team lead for homicides, they would ask me various questions about the crime scene or the processing or the evidence or whatever it might be. But it's basically because there's no defense there, if you've got any shred of evidence, you don't have to present, you should, but you don't have to present anything that is contrary to that person being indicted. So of course, 30 to 40 people will listen to only one side of the argument. And if it's presented properly, there should be no issues getting an indictment. I think the famous phrase is, if done right, you can indict a ham sandwich or something along those lines. Because, again, with no defense, there's nobody that's going to object to anything you say. There's nobody to rule out evidence that you present. It's basically whether or not there's enough to bring this charges against this person. And if you have any shred of evidence, you should be able to get an indictment. So the fact that three of them are indicted, that's not surprising. But the fact that this guy has gone to two grand juries and they can't get an indictment, That's that should be pretty telling right there about the strength of the case. And Robert's capital murder trial began in April of 2001, and it was soon made very clear that the trial would only be based on the confessions the police had gained made by the other teens during police interrogations, as there was zero physical evidence that linked any of the suspects to the crimes. And they're not going to know it during this trial, but even the 22 caliber that Maurice was found to possess was ruled out as it did not match the murder weapon. So basically, back in 1999, what happened was, I think it was Michael Scott, that investigators in this cold case, they tracked him down, and then they spent something like 18 hours with him. They drove him to the scene of the crime, and he was said to be extremely gullible. He wanted to help the police. He wanted to solve this case. He was, I think a lot of people said he was very easy to manipulate by the police and by that it was that he wanted to please the investigators with information that they wanted to hear so a lot of people will question if you're innocent of a crime and you didn't do it why would you confess to it well again it it's almost psychological warfare after 18 hours of listening to somebody tell you you did this or your buddies did this and i think in this case they tried to claim that michael was just a lookout in the crime or or something and so they, they downplayed his involvement and had him throw his other buddies under the bus and then fed him the information he needed. And, and again, with, with no evidence to back this up, you're going completely off of the effects of this terrible interrogation on this guy to gain a confession to say what he and the other teens did that night. And I think there was some specific information as to how Amy, the youngest one, was found laying with her right arm outreached, something along those lines that that was their aha, gotcha moment. But what was difficult was, since they didn't have the transcripts back from 1991 or any information what was said, they don't know what information was fed to these suspects that they might have still remembered eight years later. And so it wasn't as if they were working with a completely clean slate. So anything they did gain was potentially tarnished from the 1991 interviews. So again, these confessions are, are filled with issues. And then they even played the confessions for the jury. And the jury was exposed to some extremely questionable and even some criminal behavior at the hands of the police. Uh, During one of the interrogations, one of the detectives put his gun, and I don't know if this was loaded or not, to the back of the suspect's head. And again, this was covered real briefly in an article, which I think it should have gotten more press than it did. And now this is 1991, so 
things are a little different 30 years ago. I get that, but still, this is not something that is ever okay. And I don't know if it was something where he could have unloaded the gun in front of the kid and then pointed it at the back of his head to say, you know, how do you think you would have felt if you were this 13-year-old girl with a gun to the back of your head? Again, I'm sure it was a purely emotional response, but at the same time, there, there's no excuse for this. And as I mentioned before, it was also determined the suspects were likely given holdback information during their interrogations that was later used as proof of their involvement. One of the original detectives on the case was proven to have done this several times before, and he mentored other homicide detectives in the art of obtaining confessions, even if the confessions are possibly false. So we have a track record with one of the lead detectives on this case getting false confessions out of people that could not have committed the crimes, and he's again, the guy that's trained in all these other detectives that are now bringing these confessions to a trial in, in 2001. And after a month-long trial, the jury, likely trying to give justice to the four slain girls and not really thinking about the actual merits of the case, found Robert guilty of capital murder and the judge sentenced him to death. Michael was also found guilty in 2002, but sentenced to life without parole. And I think that spoke to the level of cooperation he gave to the police. I don't know if it was he was granted some type of clemency for how he assisted with the investigation and they wanted to show that because he was helpful and, and went with the police to the, to the scene and explained what happened and all that kind of stuff. And then he tried to get the other guys to confess. And that was a big deal. Was, I think the guy that they weren't able to bring the grand jury to get them to indict. Uh, the police brought Michael with them to interrogate the guy and the guy was looking at Michael saying, why are you telling him this stuff? This didn't happen. Why Why are you doing this? And the police thought it was just him denying his involvement. But when you look back at it now, the guy's probably right saying, hey, I don't know why you're telling him I did this stuff. I didn't do anything. I don't know why you're telling him you did stuff because you didn't do... He couldn't understand why Michael was giving a false confession and throwing his buddies under the bus. But as we look back at it now, with the lengthy interrogation, the desire to please the police, it's it's easy to see how Michael was manipulated. And But it's also that's the reason why charges were never brought against this other guy is because he wouldn't confess to something he didn't do. And then charges against Maurice were dropped in 2003. So the, the only two guys going to jail out of this are Michael and Robert. Robert's sitting on death row, and Michael is sentenced to life without parole. And as part of the automatic appeals process in Robert's death penalty case, defense lawyers appealed on the grounds the case was based purely on confessions, and while the video confessions of the other suspects were played at the trials, the men who made those confessions were not called as witnesses, and therefore cannot be cross-examined by the defense. This resulted in the overturning of their convictions, and they were eventually freed from prison after almost a decade behind bars. And so this is a huge deal uh, with this case. Basically, the jury is only seeing these police interrogations and these confessions, especially in the case of Robert. It's a lot from Michael Scott's confession in regards to what the men did that evening at the yogurt shop. But the prosecution knows that if they put these guys on trial, especially Maurice and Forrest, they're going to deny anything from these confessions. It's, it's going to look bad for the jury because the jury is going to look and say, well, who do I believe? Do I believe the guy that says they did this or do I believe the guy who's on the stand under oath swearing that he had nothing to do with this? So the prosecution tried to sneak this by by saying well, we'll just play the videos and then the jury will see these confessions and they'll realize you know there's no other story to this it's just it's just our word against theirs and they don't even get to put a word in and the of course the the courts looked at that the courts above them the appeals court looked at it and i think it eventually went to the supreme court and they said no you can't you can't do it this way this isn't how the justice system works the the accused has the right to confront their witnesses and you didn't give them a chance so overturn the conviction and the prosecutors vowed to put together a new case and try the men again but shortly after making this promise advancements in dna technology located unknown dna from the victim's clothing that did not match any of the four men accused of the crime 
Prosecutors initially said they would be testing the DNA against all first responders on the scene to see if it was a cross-contamination issue from someone who touched the bodies in a time before DNA was at the forethought of crime scene investigators. But ultimately, they couldn't find a match and decided not to retry the two men. So the prosecutors took a step back and said, well, wait a second. Just because the DNA we have from the victims doesn't match any of our four suspects doesn't mean that these four suspects didn't commit the crime. It, it could be DNA from a firefighter, an EMS personnel, a investigator who was on the scene that touched the bodies without gloves, which is really interesting because if it was the other way around, I don't know that the prosecution would be all that thrilled about trying to say, hey, if it was somebody else's DNA that got on the, the suspect, that they would look at it the same way. That is, They would say the only way that the DNA gets there is if this person is the suspect. They wouldn't believe in cross-contamination. So it's, it's one of those things where DNA, depending on whether you're the defense or the prosecution, you want it to be cross-contamination when it benefits you. You don't want it to be cross-contamination when it doesn't. More problems with the case against the men were reported when the lab report detailing that the 22 caliber gun found on Maurice was most likely not used in the murder, and this was omitted from any police report and case file, which meant it wasn't part of discovery for the defense. So basically, the, the gun that Maurice was caught with was sent to the ballistics lab, and I think it wasn't until the 1999 investigation. They had the gun tested. Now, the bullets recovered from the victims Apparently they were in pretty bad shape from a combination of bullets just don't do well, especially 22 caliber bullets. This is going to be morbid, but they get disfigured when they go through heavy bone like the skull. So they don't always have any type of rifling marks or anything like that on them. And then you add the fire on top of it, and I think there was additional damage that was done by the heat from this fire. But it was... According to the ballistics report, there must have been at least a, a bullet or two maybe that had enough markings on it that they were able to look at it. And it wasn't a 100% exclusion, probably because of the damage, but the ballistics expert in his report or her report said something to the effect that this is most likely not the murder weapon. And that should have gone into the case file as, as a lab report. The defense should have seen that under discovery so that they could have brought it up in trial and said, hey, look, the only reason they're talking to these guys is because of this gun that Maurice was found with a couple days later. Their own lab is saying this isn't the gun involved. So the only shred of physical evidence that you have linking these teenagers to this crime is this 22 caliber gun, and that's not involved. So now you have to completely go off the idea that these confessions are 100% accurate in order to convict. And basically the, the jury was asked afterwards, um, after this information became public, whether they would have convicted Robert and Michael if they had known that the gun wasn't likely the gun used in the crime. And it, I don't know if they interviewed everybody, but seven, seven members of the jury stated they would not have voted guilty if they had known the gun found on Maurice was all but proven not to be the murder weapon. And really, it only takes one member of the jury stating they would not have vote, voted guilty, which would have been a, a hung jury at that point, and I doubt they would have been able to convict just based on the limited evidence they had. But I don't know if they interviewed everybody, so it was something where seven members wouldn't have but five members still would have or whether it was they only interviewed seven and all seven of them said they wouldn't have so there's a chance that Robert and Michael would have been acquitted during the trials if this information was available. So Robert and Michael sued the state of Texas but a judge ruled that they had not been exonerated fully so they could not sue as they were still considered suspects. So when it comes to putting somebody away in prison there's a lot of states that have legislation that states that if it's found that you are exonerated of the crime and you were, you spent time in prison, you get X amount of dollars per year that you spent in prison almost automatically. However, the state of Texas is going to use some semantics here and basically say, well, it hasn't been proven that you didn't commit the crime, so we don't want to give you a bunch of money and then turn around and find out you really did commit the crime. There's nothing that has said you didn't to this point but or so you're not going to get your money 
However, for the criminal investigation, everything was back to step one. The case has new evidence due to advancements in DNA, but the sample the FBI has is very weak and at this point can only be used to rule people out. And I think it was in 2016 or 2017, the FBI came out and said they did have a match to the DNA in was CODIS or, or some database. And so everybody threw their hands up in the air in excitement and said, this is it, we're gonna find out who the killer is, we've got this match. And then the FBI said, whoa, whoa, whoa not so fast. The sample, it's something about the number of markers. It's a, still a very weak sample, so they have a match to a certain number of markers, but that doesn't get a 100% match. Basically, something in the effect of like a 1,000 people in the United States could have those numbers of markers matching. So just because you found one person with it does not make them the killer. But there is hope that as DNA technology advances more, they're gonna be able to either get further markers out of that weak sample to the point that they can narrow it down. And if they are able to ever say, this sample belongs to this person, then they will have a viable suspect. What intrigues me is that should mean that they should be able to exclude anybody who was ever on that scene to see if that DNA really is cross-contamination because if there's only a thousand people in the United States that match and one of those first responders matches that profile, again, it doesn't 100% mean that that is cross-contamination from that person because there's a very, very small chance that the, the suspect still could have left that because they would also be within that 1,000 people in the United States. But it just would be a very small, tiny, minute chance that it wouldn't be cross-contamination at that point. So I, it's frustrating because we here we are like six years later after they made this announcement and they still haven't gotten any closer as far as we can tell. But I, I do think because there is this DNA evidence and all the advancements we've had over the past even five or six years and all of the forensic genealogy stuff that has been worked out. I think even if you're able to rule out a large pool of those a thousand people, uh, you might be able to find your suspect. But this crime, we'll talk about the crime scene a little bit here and some theories that I have. And the crime scene speaks of a premeditated, well-planned out murder by at least two suspects. And that's because it's very uncommon for one suspect to have two guns. And even with a gun or two guns, it would be difficult for one person to control four people. And it's very possible the girls were separated at one point, which also indicates at least two people. And so, again, the two people theory, if there's one person holding four people hostage, the second they execute one person, those other people should be running. They they should know that their their chance to live is next to nothing. Why not risk trying to run? there's a chance that one of you could at least get away if three people run. And, and if you end up dying, it's sad, but that was what was gonna happen anyway. The idea of two people makes it seem like it's easier to control a group of people. And then again, because Amy's in another whole other part of the back area of the yogurt shop, to me that indicates that the victims were separated at some point, which is usually something that is only done by a two suspect scenario because leaving the other women even if they're bound even if they're if you think they're cured in some way leaving them putting them out of your sight going into a completely different room with this 13 year old girl would leave it so that one of the girls might escape might get away so i honestly believe it's it's two suspects in this case and maybe more but i, I really think two is probably more accurate and while robbery may have been part of the crime I think the true motive was the sexual assault, and the men likely killed the girls because they entered the store without anything to mask their identities, and the girls would be able to identify them if left alive. When you look at these crimes, again, motive is a big part of it, and I just don't see, I understand it's the 90s, I've talked about my other podcast, in the 90s cash was king, people paid with cash way more than they did with credit card, but a yogurt shop, even on a Friday night, in December, I don't care how warm it is, I, I, a July or August Friday at a frozen yogurt shop in, in Texas, I could see being a, a, a big cash business, but a December Friday night, I, I can't imagine that it's a, a, a big mark for a robbery. If you're going to go through that much effort to rob a place, you think you'd rob a place that's 
going to have several thousand dollars. You might as well rob a bank at that point or even gas stations might have had more money back then than than a yogurt shop. And you have to keep in mind too that they were willing to risk doing this with four victims there. A robbery is usually a crime of opportunity and so I could see if there was one employee or even two employees and no witnesses that two people would risk committing a robbery at that point. But with four people you've it just doesn't seem to be like, again, there's easier places where people work alone, convenience stores, different places like that, where you're more likely to get away with the crime and less likely to, to run into issues. And so to me, they seem to be extremely motivated to commit this crime. And they knew from the very beginning that they were going to kill anybody that was a witness because again, it's they didn't walk in in ski masks. They didn't plan this out as we're going to hide our identities. They probably passed themselves off as customers. And it may have been a crime of opportunity in terms of a, a sexual assault. Then, Or it could have been something where these guys have frequented the store before and became infatuated with the teenage girls working there and decided that that night they were going to commit the sexual assault. And setting the shop on fire adds a level of sophistication to the crime. And this is because fires are not always successful and they do require some level of thought and calm after killing four people. And this again indicates a level of organization and control that likely points to multiple suspects that have committed similar crimes. And I say that because I can't imagine, and I've never killed four people in cold blood, but I can't imagine that you are in a mental state at that point that is anything but get the heck out of the area. So to think, hey, we can't just leave, we actually have to try to destroy evidence at the same time, to me that is pre-planning, that's pre-thinking, and it's also, again, most things post-1980s are not designed to burn. A lot of stuff has been made fire retardant in the United States, and so starting a fire, there's there's many times that I worked cases where somebody tried to burn their house down or burn a car or whatever it might be. And it's not as easy as it looks in TV or movies. It requires a lot of flammable liquids added to the scene in order to really get the fire going. There's a lot of fire suppression systems in, in places now and probably not as many in 1991, but again, to get a fire going is not always the easiest thing, especially in a situation like the back of a yogurt shop. So these guys either had to think ahead or they had to know what items they could use in the shop to further the fire. I think they covered the women in like some styrofoam cups or maybe the, like the styrofoam bowls that the yogurt went in or something and knowing that that stuff burns uh, really hot. So, so again, to me, this isn't teenagers. This is not 15-year-old Maurice Pierce and his buddies for teens committing this crime and thinking this through and, and, and starting this place on fire afterwards. And if I had to guess, the criminals in this case were at least 25 years old, which would make them approaching 60, if not older than 60, if they're still alive today. I think they're likely incarcerated, uh, possibly under some type of sex crime or sexual assault that ended in a murder. I don't think this is, it was a one-off that they did. And it's possible one of them died shortly after the crime and the remaining suspect has kept his mouth shut because anyone convicted of this crime is sure to get the death penalty. And again, it happened in Texas. Uh, Robert got the death penalty. He didn't even do this crime as far as I can tell. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of incentive for either two guys or one guy to keep their mouth shut and not tell anybody that they had done this because if anybody figures out that it's them, again, they're facing, uh, facing the death penalty for this. And so in conclusion, this case was a difficult one from the beginning for investigators. Most of the evidence had been destroyed by the fire or the firefighters and the initial scene response. Left with little in the way of evidence, investigators had just the calibers of two different weapons used and evidence that two of the girls had been sexually assaulted. Eyewitness testimony gave them a little to work with, but the lack of physical evidence meant finding the suspect would take a miracle, and finding a suspect they could link with what little evidence they had was even more unlikely. The idea that a 15-year-old kid caught with a 22 caliber handgun was going to be related was one in a million shot, and a combination of a gullible suspect and overzealous interrogation and prosecution closed that gap, which flew in the face of what little physical evidence they had. 
So this case is more likely to be solved by via a lucky arrest of someone who actually had knowledge of the crime or something like a cellmate confession that would turn investigators towards a viable suspect. So again, it's just it's not one of those cases where there's evidence that's going to point towards a specific suspect. There's evidence to point towards a specific type of suspect and suspects in this case, but there's nothing that's indicating there's no fingerprints. So the only thing is going to be this DNA if they're able to solve it with the DNA. And there's another famous case in nearby New Mexico that has a very similar feel to it. I'll probably cover at some point here. It's the Las Cruces Bowling Lanes Massacre. And that one's known for the suspects entering the business, getting all the employees into a room, executing them, and then starting a fire. However, in that case, the motive was clearly robbery, and no one was sexually assaulted. So even though that was confirmed to be two guys because somebody survived, it just, there's a lot of people, it was around the same time period that look at it and say, could it have been a similar situation? Could the guys from the Las Cruces have come over to Texas and committed a very similar style of crime, except there's two very different motives there. I think in this case, I do believe it's motivated by sexual assault, and the other one, I believe, is motivated by robbery. That doesn't mean that they can't be the same suspects, but there's been a lot of people that have looked into the two cases and while there's a lot of similarities i think there's enough differences that people have said they don't believe that the same suspects are involved in both cases. but they're both unsolved so we don't know so i do hold out hope that this case will be solved via that dna i talked about in the future uh, just like the golden state killer case the killer or killers may still be out there and if they are the victims and their families deserve real justice in this case but that is the case of the Yogurt Shop murders. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at truebluecrimes at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.